Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 26 and as always, if you have questions that you want me to answer on the podcast, send them to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and it's Michael with a K or send them on Facebook through the Facebook Messenger widget in the bottom right corner of the website scientifictriathlon.com. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks to Roka for sponsoring this episode. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, and other triathlon swim and eyewear apparel. Roka started out as a mission, basically a garage mission, uh, to make the world's fastest wetsuit. And uh, you may not know it because it's become such a runaway success, but it's quite a young company. So so its rise to the top has really been quite uh, meteoric. And one of the main reasons for that, I just recently found out actually, it's uh, a little bit of luck and uh, and a lot of like just having a really great product, really fast wetsuit. Uh, but it was uh, getting some professional triathletes to try the wetsuit and give it a go early on. And uh, some of the pioneers were uh, Jesse Thomas, he was probably the first one, and also Meredith Kessler uh, was one of the first one. And when athletes like these could see a very measurable and significant difference, and it showed in their swim times in races, then words start to spread quite quickly because the triathlon uh, community is is quite small, as as you probably know, and especially so in the professional field. And that made a lot of other professionals to jump on board, which of course then uh, functions as inspiration for age groupers as well and uh, leads to uh, a growth of the brand. But the key there was that uh, if the wetsuit had not been significantly faster than anything else, then athletes like uh, Jesse Thomas uh, might not have uh, have decided to actually use the wetsuit in in races, and this might never have happened. So, uh, so this origin story shows why Roka really aren't satisfied with anything else than being uh, the best uh, period in any product category, and the wetsuit was just the start of that. So yeah, I heard an interview with uh, founder uh, Kurt recently, and and that was where I learned more about this this origin story. So I've f- found it quite interesting. Uh, but if you are interested in any Roka products, then go to roka.com and use the promo code TTS. Note again that we have changed the promo code recently, so now it's just TTS, and that will give you twenty percent off your entire order. All right. So today's first question is from. Harry in Dorset, who writes, Hi, Michael, I'm in a slight dilemma. Uh, I have listened to the Swim Smooth podcasts and they recommend three swim sessions uh, per week, but I can only fit in two. Uh, I am happy with structuring my technique and aerobic endurance session, but I'm not sure how to uh, structure and adjust my second session. I'm thinking this should be a mix of technique, speed and strength work with paddles. Can you offer any help or assistance here? All right, thank you, Harry, for your question. Uh, so first of all, I'll link to those Swim Smooth episodes. So that was, I did a two-part interview with Paul Newsom in um, episodes 130-something, I believe. So I'll link to them in the episode description so you can go and check them out. They're, they are some of the most popular episodes that I've, I've recorded to date. So first of all, I would, uh, I guess, uh, challenge your view that it's... Uh, an absolute given that your first session or that one of your sessions should necessarily be technique aerobic endurance it may be the case but it may not be the case if you are a weaker swimmer then uh, probably yes then that would be a good assumption to make 
Uh, and in that case, if you are, let's say, back of the mid-pack or back of the pack swimmer, then the second session, I would probably focus on a mix of sometimes doing longer, moderately hard intervals. Uh, so those might be 400 meter intervals, that sort of, uh, that sort of, of uh, length. And sometimes you might do slightly shorter threshold intervals, which are still at a controlled intensity at which you can simultaneously work on fitness and good form. Because we're not, uh, technique and fitness go hand in hand. It's not, you're not training either one or the other, especially not, well, if you're training, if you're doing drills, then you're just training one, then you're not training fitness. But when you're actually swimming, even when you're swimming hard, you should still have the awareness to focus on form and it is technique practice every single good stroke that you take in a swimming session is fantastic technique practice so so i think that the key performance indicator for swimming that's the number of good strokes that you take in any given week and uh, usually like that goes hand in hand with uh, with the total distance that you swim and and that means actually swimming and drills can help you facilitate to actually take good strokes rather than taking just strokes but it's not uh, necessarily uh, always the case that doing drills will improve the quality of the rest of the strokes and in that case it might be more of an opportunity cost so uh, so that's the case for some swimmers not necessarily for you again but as for these uh, sessions that I uh, that I recommend if you are more of a mid to back of the pack swimmer then yes doing one technique aerobic endurance based session and one uh, slightly harder session or quite a bit harder with either uh, longer moderately hard intervals or slightly shorter uh, quite uh, quite strong threshold intervals those are the kinds of sessions that i might that, that i would recommend that you i guess alternate between and i'll describe both of these sessions in in just a little bit but if you are a mid-pack swimmer or faster and you can only fit in two sessions per week, so, so you're not at the really beginning stages, let's say that you're swimming around 145 per 100 meter pace or, or so, then I would say that both of the sessions that you do, they should have some uh, some sort of harder main set in them. Uh, so it's not really possible uh, for me to give a black and white answer without knowing your athletic profile. Uh, and well, to be totally fair, it's never possible to give a black and white answer. Uh, but it would be easier knowing more of your athletic profile and, and also the types of races that you do. Uh, but without knowing that, I would say that uh, that what you rarely can go much wrong with, that is to do that sort of again longer moderately hard aerobic intervals so they're going to be hard the work is going to be hard because the the intervals they the the intensity or i guess the the fatigue sneaks up on you it feels easy at first but then when you need to hold that for a long time and you need to repeat it for several intervals then it suddenly becomes really really difficult uh, so the intensity is obviously only as high as the distance of the intervals allow for so Again, it could be 400s, it could be a set of 5 times 500 meters. And uh, the speed for that 5 times 500 meter example, that would be a little bit slower than your 70.3 race pace, but a little bit faster than your Ironman race pace, so somewhere in between there. And and you should simply, based on the interval or the prescription, you should self-regulate to find a good sustainable intensity for you. Uh, on the extreme side of this type of workouts, I guess we have the Swim Smooth's uh, infamous red mist session, so 10 times 400 meters. You don't have to go that far to get a good session of moderately hard aerobic intervals in, but that's a great session, especially if you are uh, 
towards that uh, mid to front pack uh, in in terms of your swimming ability. The second session, in addition to those longer, uh, moderately hard intervals that become hard just because of the amount of work that you do in total, uh, but uh, moderate intensity, I should say. The second session, uh, I would, it depends a lot. Like if your technique is quite good, then I do like to use a couple of uh, blocks of VO2 max training. So perhaps getting in uh, three blocks over the course of a year where you once per week do a VO2 max session for, for a four week period, for example. So you might do, uh, might do that four week block with one session per week that is focused on VO2 max, uh, for, uh, for four weeks. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, I think I did. So, so something like 12 times 100 meters or eight times 150 meters shooting for like one, one and a half to three or four minutes in duration for the intervals. And the work to rest ratio, I, for swimming, I usually like to use a two to one work to rest ratio simply because the, and that's different than what I normally prescribe in cycling and running because in swimming, the recovery is completely passive. You're just resting at the wall. So for example, it might be, let's say that you do your, your hard VO2 max intervals 100 meters in one thirty, one minute 30 seconds. Then you might rest for, for 45 seconds. And the pace should be around your 400 meter time trial speed. So the best pace, pace that you could hold for 400 meters. That is, that is roughly your VO2 max pace. So that is what you should shoot for in these intervals. But as I said, those are some, a few specific blocks that, that I like to focus on VO2 max. And outside of those blocks, you need to do something else. So more commonly than VO2 max, then that second session will be a threshold session. So getting in 1500 to 2000 meters of work at your Olympic to half distance race effort. So example workouts might be eight times 200, six times 300. And the work to rest ratio would be roughly four to one or so, maybe even higher, depending on, on how you, how you go on that, uh, in those intervals. So four to one work to rest ratio. That might mean that if you swim for, uh, let's say three minutes, that uh, that would mean oh now I made the math very difficult for myself. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to calculate that. Let's say you swim for for two minutes, then uh, that would mean. Let me think here. Thirty seconds recovery. I think I think that that's what it would mean. Uh, so, uh, but you can you can do the math, and it can be even higher. Like usually for the slightly more advanced, like mid to advanced mid pack to advanced swimmers. It, I do tend to try to, to work that work to rest ratio up to, to something that is even higher. So even less rest compared to the work duration in those threshold intervals. And as for pure speed work, then on just two sessions per week and as a triathlete, especially where speed isn't really uh, super important, then I wouldn't focus any single session on just speed, but I would work a little bit of speed into some of your sessions for example in between the warm-up and the main set so so if you have like a threshold or vo2 max workout perhaps after your easy warm-up you do four times 25 meter maximum sprints and with a good amount of recovery so that you can you can really reach your maximum output in each of those sprints and uh, yeah that would be a good way to get a little bit of speed work in as well so hope this helps Harry and uh, anybody else, because this is, I think, quite a common question and uh, and a common scenario that you only have two uh, two sessions per week of swimming, uh, two times available per week where you can go swimming. 
so so this gives some ideas i hope for for any listeners that that might be in that situation the next question is from uh, stephanie in uh, perth australia and uh, she writes hi michael i have a question about heart rate and pace zones for running it is one i have been struggling with for a while based on the calculations that you suggest in uh, your zone calculator uh, my threshold running pace is around four minutes 42 seconds per kilometer and my threshold heart rate is about 175 beats per minute now this corresponds to an upper limit zone 2 heart rate of 145 beats per minute and my suggested zone 2 running pace is around 5 minutes 25 uh, f- 5 minutes 25 seconds per kilometer however if i am to try and stay in zone 2 so under 145 beats per minute i have to practically walk at close to 7 minutes per kilometer i find jogging this slow uncomfortable and bad for form I've tried increasing cadence at the same speed, but it doesn't help. I know how important it is to stay in zone 2 for a lot of the training, but I just don't know how to do it. Pretty much as soon as I start jogging, my heart rate is 160 at minimum. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks for your question, Stephanie. This is a really great question and a really common one. You're definitely not alone with uh, this uh, this situation or variations of this question they do come up time and time again and a related episode to this question by the way is q and a number 12 which is called heart rate or power zones and incorporating additional races into a training plan where one of the questions was uh, very much related to this topic so go and look at that as well or listen to that i'll link to it in the episode description in general i think that for for those zone one and zone two workouts it is good to follow heart rate uh, so uh, what you're trying to do there to try to keep heart rate down is a good thing but that said for some athletes including you and uh, typically th- these are athletes with a lesser aerobic base for for whatever reason uh, then this situation that you describe it uh, it does happen like you just have to if you want to keep that heart rate you have to sacrifice form sacrifice form or even walk and I know that some people say that this is the way to go. Uh, I don't agree with that. I, I think that you should be running, jogging at something that feels like you can you can hold sort of a normal normal running form because that that is important because that's how you're going to also improve things like your running economy. So so in your situation, as long as uh, the pace that you're running at uh, or the effort feels very easy, I would allow myself to go at uh, not necessarily the, the estimated or calculated zone two pace, because remember, that's just an average estimate. It's not an absolute truth. Uh, but what I would do is to go at just fast enough that it feels like your natural running form. And also it still feels very easy. Your perceived effort is that it is very easy. It is a, uh, it is something that you could hold for a long, 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 long time. And, uh, and the heart rate then is what it is. It, it might be maybe it is 160 at the start and then let it be 160 then the question becomes one of just keeping being consistent with your training and and ideally gradually increase the amount of of training and running that you do and then you'll start finding that your your heart rate gets lower and lower at that pace and you don't increase your pace and until you get your heart rate down to that uh, that sort of estimated zone 2 heart rate level at that pace that you can still run with with decent form and feeling comfortable as well 
So, so to get a bit specific, I think that uh, like some quick quick tips for you: run at least twice per week, but ideally three times per week for forty eight to fifty out of the fifty two weeks of the year. Because this isn't something that uh, that is going to. I mean, you can see some changes in four weeks of uh, running three times per week, depending on what your baseline is. But this is something that really requires that like consistency. Uh, at a higher level from a 10,000 foot overview point of view. So, so looking at what you're doing in a given year, how many times do you put on your running shoes in a given year? And you want to be consistent with that two to three times at least per week of running for 48 to 50 out of 52 weeks of the year. And, and this is, by the way, assuming that uh, you're a triathlete and you also do two swims and, and two rides or so. So it doesn't have to be that you're doing long workouts, long runs, sometimes a short 15 minute jog is all you can do then go ahead and do that it's way better than doing nothing uh, another point here it's uh, not a tip so much as uh, i guess something to keep in mind the zones calculator that uh, that i have that you refer to it uses the your 20 minute time trial running time trial as the base input and uh, this is i'm uh, the first to admit not always the best thing and uh, especially not for less experienced athletes who don't always pace the best and uh, and don't always get 100 percent out of themselves in these time trials so maybe you did not actually reach what your maximum sustainable heart rate would have been for that duration which would then in turn result in uh, a lower zone 2 heart rate limit than what you should actually have so what you could do is uh, if you know your maximum heart rate for running or roughly your maximum heart rate within a few beats per minute, uh, then you, you can look at your past three kilometer or five kilometer races or something like that and uh, and see what your maximum was. And maybe you, you think that you, you could reach two or three beats per minute higher than what you actually saw in the data. That's usually what I do if I see 180 after after a five kilometer all out race then I would assume that my maximum heart rate is 182 or something like that. So so you take that estimated maximum heart rate that uh, it's sort of estimated, but also based on data that you have, take 75% of that maximum heart rate number. You could use that as your heart rate ceiling for zone two work. And uh, maybe the test did not give you a good representation of your of your zone two heart rate. So, so try this uh, maximum heart rate based approach and see if it corresponds or not, and uh, and perhaps that might be something that uh, that can show you that uh, I guess your zone two heart rate might not be well estimated from that twenty minute time trial, uh, because it, it is not always uh, a good estimate. Uh, that's uh, definitely not the case. So I hope that this helps Stephanie and and anybody else that might struggle with uh, these sorts of of, of issues. The final question for today is from Paul from the United Kingdom who writes, Hi Michael, I've been really enjoying your podcast and learning a lot from both your guest speakers and the Q&A sessions. I have a question myself that I wondered if you'd consider. I'm currently training for Challenge Rove and I did my first Ironman distance race last year. I recently read an article from Alan Cousins discussing when it was appropriate to transition from base phase to build phase. And I'll link to that in the episode description, by the way. From Cousin's article, he identifies a set of benchmark power figures to be the acceptance criteria for entering build phase. A lot of emphasis is uh, 
placed on raising your FTP, your functional threshold power. But doing that will just make these uh, benchmarks harder to hit as uh, as they will increase with the functional threshold power. So my training to date has been heavily reliant on the trainer road training plans and nothing in there looks like it would build my endurance to the levels prescribed by Cousins to hit those benchmarks. Their workouts just don't prescribe that level of intensity for that long. What type of training is best suited to building up to endurance uh, of such level that uh, that the five hour five hour workout on the bike can be maintained at eighty five percent of FTP, which is one of the benchmarks that that cousins identify. Uh, thank you, Paul, for your question. Uh, this is a very specific question, but uh, which uh, sometimes I I don't select super specific questions because I do want all the listeners to get value from the Q&A episodes. But this one, I think it, I, there are some general points that I want to make that, that I think that a lot of listeners can uh, can really get a lot of value from. So so that's uh, something that that I think that, that, yeah, I guess as a listener, even though you may think that, well, this is a question that I'm not going to learn from, anything from, uh, keep listening. And uh, I have some more gen- general points that you might learn something from. Uh, so, uh, the first of, of these general points getting right into it is that uh, you should never make your training like a random potluck I guess and uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get inspired and influenced from a variety of sources but what I mean is that you you actually do need to be careful that you don't start to combine uh, quote-unquote incompatible training philosophies with each other in your own training uh, because such very different philosophies, they may both work well in themselves, but combining them, it can sort of defeat the purpose of, of both. So in this example, uh, Alan Cousins, who is, by the way, great, uh, great guy, great coach, and he was a guest back in episode 79 that I'll also link to in the episode description. He talked about lab testing in, in that one and lactate and that sort of thing. Uh, he is a big proponent, I know, of building a strong aerobic base, uh, using a high volume approach, a lot of low intensity training. Trainer Road is almost the complete opposite with a lot of moderate to high intensity training in typically lower volume plans, although they do have high volume plans as well. Uh, there's uh, also differences in how they define and assess uh, your threshold, your FTP, where Alan Cousins uses a one hour time trial typically, as far as I'm aware. And the trainer road uses a ramp test these days, but also as an alternative, the traditional 20 minute FTP test. But I, I'm sure that for 98% of the listeners here and definitely for myself, you will get a significantly higher FTP value if you use the trainer road protocols, either one of them compared to using a one hour time trial that, that Alan Cousins prescribes. So there's the first incompatibility issue with using these two uh, different methods together. Uh, if you use Trainer Road to define your your FTP, but you try to hit uh, hit Alan Cousins' benchmarks, then that is just a recipe for disaster. And uh, not to mention, as you say, that Trainer Road they might not have the workouts available in the first place to to even yeah uh, get to that endurance level where you can hit those benchmarks even if that threshold discrepancy wasn't an issue uh, i'm not sure i haven't looked at their uh, library now for this specific question uh, even though i'm a trainer road user so i'm very familiar with uh, with how they what, what sort of workouts they have in there but i believe you when you say that you have a hard time finding the, those workouts so 
what I'm saying here is that if you want to put stock in those benchmarks by Alan Cousins and use them in your training, then you need to largely be following his training methodology rather than Trainer Rhodes. Uh, otherwise, you can, of course, keep following Trainer Rhodes' methodology, but then you need to ignore those Alan Cousins benchmarks because they're not going to be relevant for the type of training that you're doing. And this is one example of why it's so great to have a coach because then you don't have to worry about this whole risk of ending up in a random potluck situation where where you or you build a frankenstein's monster uh, putting together uh, small bits and pieces from various different different sources in your training that don't necessarily mesh well with each other uh, if you have that coach you get uh, the cohesive approach that your coach deems the best for you and the coach can then and should then act as a filter for anything else which may be great for for other athletes but for you it might just be a distraction so uh, so that's uh, I guess uh, the first main takeaway. And uh, a personal opinion on the article itself because I did go and and check it out and read it. Uh, so first of all, I'm as guilty as anybody on proliferating the use of terms such as base and build. Although uh, recently, more recently I'm trying to be very cautious and uh, uh, try to not use these terms and some other terms that I really don't like and and don't believe in that much to be honest uh, so i guess you caught my tone there i do not like uh, labeling and delineating so bla- in a black and white manner between base and build uh, i think it's just very very arbitrary and has little to do with how the human body actually adapts to training because there, there is no switch in the body that suddenly turns on saying that you're now ready to proceed to to build <laughs> or anything like that. So uh, I believe that base and build, it's it's really based on uh, the quite outdated concept of traditional linear periodization, which for most athletes, whether you're an age grouper or a professional, it has little to do with performance in this day's triathlon season reality. And then base and build from that uh, traditional linear periodization concept has then become some sort of like i guess uh jargon almost and uh some yeah mar- marketing as well to some extent uh, i yeah I, I dislike those terms and and i don't think that you should uh, place too much stock in them to be more specific i guess I, I don't think that you shouldn't do hard intervals just because you're base building because guess what most of the physiological changes that we see with long slow distance training that is traditionally that is associated with traditional long slow distance training we see those same exact same physiological changes with high intensity interval training Uh, so why not do both in appropriate amounts and the distribution of how much high intensity and low intensity and volume that you do that will depend on a myriad of factors of course and it will change as we progress through the season but i do not think that there ever needs to be a point in your program where there is a dramatic shift in that distribution or or what your focus is so so any shift that you see there will be a perhaps a dramatic shift over the course of of a few months but that is a result of many small smaller more gradual changes over time so uh, Paul, I hope I don't come across as a contrarian for not directly answering your questions about which workouts you should do to hit those benchmarks. But I think that it's more beneficial for you to, I guess, shift your thinking to account for the key points made here, uh, which uh, just to, uh, to I guess, uh, summarize where don't mix incompatible training methodologies. And uh, that does not mean don't get influenced by different sources, but 
but it's uh yeah mixing mixing too liberally uh it's not necessarily the best thing to do and and a great example an extreme example of this is that you should never have use separate swimming training programs or and bike and run training programs or for that matter have separate swim bike and run coaches ever that's a recipe for disaster and uh, and the second point was that base the concepts of base and build they are very arbitrary concepts and in my opinion it's not worth putting too much stock into into them and uh yeah they they re- they aren't really related in any way to to training adaptations so so think more about what sort of adaptations you're after rather than what training phase you're in and again apologies for having used these terms quite a lot in in past episodes but uh, as anybody uh, my thinking is changing over time and uh, and some things i find that uh, aren't helpful i think that base and build i i still sort of sometimes thinking in those terms but i think that the the main problem with them really is that for a lot of of self-coached athletes it it, it's so easy to get hung up on these concepts and and that's why i think that especially that that's the main reason that i don't really want to proliferate the use of of those terms anymore and uh, and make things more complicated than they actually are so so that's a bit more about my my stance on that matter so that wraps it up for today keep sending in questions of course they're really really great and uh, i'll link in the episode description to q a number 12 that i mentioned for heart rate versus power zones to the episode with Alan Cousins to lab test or not to lab test in episode 79 and also to the episodes with Paul Newsom from Swims Move which I don't remember the the episode numbers but I'll have it linked in the episode description. Big thanks to Roka for sponsoring that triathlon show. If you're looking for wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles and high performance eyewear then go to roca.com and use the promo code tts which is a new code code so don't use the old one that will give you 20 percent off your entire order thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>